Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. Today's podcast, we have our fall camp preview. About an hour and 10-minute conversation with Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss recruiting staffer, as Ole Miss is set to kick off fall camp on Saturday. Figure I'd go ahead and drop this on Thursday morning for the people to get you people into football mode as football season is here. As you're listening to this, the Hall of Fame game is Thursday night. Uh, fall camps are opening all across the country, even though they're not necessarily aptly named because it's 100 degrees outside. But football season is upon us. So Weldon and I uh, talked a lot of different things regarding Ole Miss football, the QB2 battle, what to think about the secondary, John Rice Plumley's prospects at slot receiver, all kinds of different stuff. This is our 2021 fall camp preview. But before we get to that, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. You all know the deal. You need to check this guy, these guys out. They're absolutely legit. Skybox currently has a deal running. So we uh, we have a new special for the people. NASCAR ramping back up. Anybody that signs up for the NASCAR package in the month of August gets 30% off with the promo code NASCAR. And you can type in the promo code Rippy and get 20% off. But as football season comes upon us, you need to go check out their picks packages. They have sports-centric packages, seasonal packages, month-long, week-long. You can do a daily pass if you want to. Any sort of of picks package that fits your price range. I promise you they're going to have it. You could do a year all sports. You need to go check these guys out. As we get toward football season, you don't want to be paying the man. You want to beat the man. And Skybox is the only way to guarantee that that's going to happen. They will make sure that the bookie is paying you and you are not paying the bookie, which is a pretty sweet deal. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Speaking of football season, I know you people are finding loopholes to get grills into the Grove, put some food on uh, on your tailgate table, and you need to go check out LB's University Avenue across from Kroger to do that. Sausages, Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special, all kinds of good stuff going on there. If you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage just for being a subscriber, rippyrights.substack.com. Uh, you, can, you get a newsletter from yours truly and then discounted meats. I'll let you decide which one is more valuable. Uh, it's still up for debate, up in the air on that one. So check them out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Thrilled to have Greg sponsor the podcast of one of my good friends and an absolute day one supporter of the Rippy Rights podcast. Here is Weldon Rodenberg. What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights podcast. I am Brian Scott Rippy. On the other end of the line, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg going to be joining us throughout the football season as we kind of introduced you last week, two weeks ago. We're going to get to a point where I don't have to say that, but uh, only one podcast in will go with the full intro. Fall camp is upon us. We'll get into all kinds of different stuff regarding what uh, is really kind of one of the more exciting Ole Miss football seasons really in over half a decade at this point, I guess, kind of looking back at it now, covers some different stuff from uh, probably pretty high level. Like we have a lot of, we have a lot of time, as I just mentioned to Weldon, like before we started recording before, you know, things actually matter per se, but we'll get into some fall camp stuff. So consider this the fall camp preview show. Uh, what's happening, my friend? How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back for round two. No. absolutely it's uh it's finally here like as much as I kind of so I remember like working 
like I would, it sucked not having any content for July. And then you'd get almost like this false sense of hope as fall camp started because like, okay, it's here. You're out on the practice field. You have things to write about. And then you get like two and a half weeks in. It's like, well, we have two more weeks and I have absolutely nothing to write about, but at least it's something like, you know, SEC media days is not actually something we're here. I think you got the hall of fame game, depending on when this is dropped and when people are listening to this, you might have it tonight. It might've already happened. Like, Football season is in full swing, so that's something to get excited about in its own right. I'll start you off with this. Like, what does fall camp – like, the start of fall camp mean to you is an extraordinarily shitty way to ask this question. But, like, for guys working on the inside, particularly talent evaluator, like, types like that, what was the first day of fall camp for you guys like? Like, what what was the mindset? What did you think about it? I mean, fall camp's still exciting for us, uh, really because you get to see the guys that you've recruited get on campus and start. And you get to see them begin their path. And that's a lot of fun. I mean, practice with Kiffin was always in the morning. So you kind of got into a, back into a routine after doing all the recruiting visits and whatnot throughout the summer, um, which was great. And I love going to practice. I went every single day. I mean, that's why I work there is to watch football and be around it and, you know, help build. So we had practice in the morning. Uh, After that, you know, whenever the coaches felt like it, we would go and watch film. And I would always sit in the offensive staff room and kind of just just listen and watch. You know, I'm not giving absolutely no insight (laughs) to what they're doing. But it was a good routine. After that, you know, you'd have a team meeting. And to be honest, it becomes – a pretty long few weeks, especially for us. You fill time evaluating players and watching guys, but really for the coaches, that's time when they snap into football mode, out of recruiting mode for sure. So when you say snap out of recruiting mode and kind of into football mode, from like a hours and like a football guy standpoint, to borrow a barstool term, is that like – less like hey we're going obviously you're selling the program and you're recruiting are you kind of getting at the fact that like hey I'm locking myself in my office for a while and it's kind of go time like the crazy coaches hours things you hear about you always hear about some strength coach or offensive analyst that has like pissed in a Mountain Dew bottle for three days straight and hasn't gone home because he's too busy watching film like is it does that kind of kick off with fall camp not to that extreme obviously no, not that to that extreme extent yeah. <laughs> no that kind uh, of uh, but it's a long, it's a long, long few weeks for really everybody in the building because there's just so much preparation, install, looking at future opponents. So for GAs and analysts and recruiting guys, and obviously the coaches as well, it's it's a long, it's a lot of hours, it's a lot of film, it's a lot of practice, uh, it's a, it's a grind for sure. So yeah, football guide mode enters recruiting doesn't take a backseat by any means. You know, you're still calling throughout the day. Maybe we'll watch film once or twice a week on a position group, depending on what, it, you know, what everyone's schedule is. But it's definitely this is football time, coaching time, let's go. That's basically fall camp. Are you – I say you as like a collective you. Like what's the balance of excitement and wanting – I've always found this interesting. Like what's the balance of excitement, wanting to get after it, and just praying to God no one gets hurt. Because, like, that's always kind of the funny thing. And you're seeing it more so in, like, NFL training camp. Kind of ironically enough, as they've, as, if they've, as they've cut back on the contact and the number of things that you're allowed to do, you've almost kind of seen more injuries and particularly no contact injuries. Like, how do you balance 
I guess coaching staff, like how do they balance like wanting to get after it and see what they have versus like, we don't need to get dudes hurt. Yeah, they, they balance it well and they go through, they, I mean, these coaches have done it, doing it so long. So you start off slow, you start off, you know, shorts and shirts out there, routes on air and all that kind of stuff. Then you kind of get into maybe shoulder pads. And then by the time you're in full pads, everyone's legs are ready to go. So if injuries occur, it's just bad luck. But, I mean, I don't know if you saw the Giants practice deal yesterday where they got in like a huge brawl because someone hit another player. I mean, that's the biggest pet peeve for these coaches. Don't touch the quarterback. And if you're a defensive player, don't unnecessarily hit somebody. That, that is the worst thing you can do in fall camp. I think Coach Luke would tell us that, uh, you know, you can tell how athletic you are by how you cannot tackle somebody in fall camp, how you can thud somebody up. Because if you're not athletic, you're going you're gonna to hurt somebody. <laughs> you're going to hurt somebody, but you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I've never and, really thought about it like that. Like, you're being able to kind of have the instincts to avoid that, I guess, is a form of athleticism in its own right. Because if you're just, you know, the piss and, piss and vinegar kind of balls to the wall all the time, I guess you are just really going to screw stuff up. Exactly. And – that's just the most important thing with fall camp is you want to get all your stuff installed and whatnot, but you just can't get people hurt. But it's also, I mean, it's kind of just luck, to, to, sort of. So as we kind of get look, kind of look at a, a, a ten thousand foot view of Ole Miss, kind of what I said at the top in the intro, like this is the first time in quite some time, particularly since I've been. Uh, since I covered the team. So I didn't actually start covering football full-time until 2016. I was kind of helping out at the student newspaper doing some different practice and some game stuff in 15. But I wasn't like fully covering football till 16. And ironically enough, that was the only season that there was any sort of major expectation, I would put it to you that way. I know the it's kind of crazy to think about by the end of that season, they were struggling with Georgia Southern and they finished five and seven and Nick Fitzgerald as like a freshman you know, blew them out 55 to 20. But you remember in August of that year, like, I mean, they got a 28, six on Florida state and like the student newspaper kid next to me, that was the Florida state kid was like, Holy shit. Like Ole Miss might win the whole thing. And I was like, yeah, maybe. Thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like that was the only year with any sort of expectation. And then after that, I mean, we don't have to go through it, but like from the, freeze thing to the NCAA sanctions to not really having much of a chance in 19 and then 20 just having the weird offseason and it being just kind of a free-for-all in terms of like there is no expectations this is the first time in quite a while that you've you've really had like real expectations to can this team make a jump and can they sort of make a statement that they can kind of uh, I guess get into that middle to upper tier the a and I guess kind of where A&M's at right now maybe not quite that high and kind of I guess, make some noise in the West for the back, lack of a better phrase, which is kind of a rare place for Ole Miss to be considering its recent history. I don't even really know the best place to start here. I guess we'll just kind of go at what's most intriguing to me. I know I sent you a couple of these notes. I guess we'll start here. The QB2 thing is interesting to me. Obviously, Matt Corral's football team, this is his offense. This is the first time he's had any sort of continuity in, uh, in his entire career, but Who's backing him up now that his former backup slash guy he was competing with is supposedly a slot receiver now? <laughs> Kincaid Dent, uh, Altmeyer, like that, those seem like the most likely two candidates. How do you view that shaking out? I would obviously, if you're making me wager money, I would put Kincaid Dent 
as the favorite and probably somewhat heavy, but hell, I don't know. Yeah, it's a question you hope you don't have to worry about. Right. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, and I was thinking about it earlier. I think it just depends, you know, God forbid, when Corral gets injured or something like that happens. What are you going to do next? You know, if Corral rolls his ankle in the opener, my guess is it's Plumley. You put him in there, you just get him through the game. He at least has a semblance of knowledge of what they were doing last year. I highly doubt that even though he's going to be playing slot receiver majority of the time, that he's not at least have one foot in or half a foot in the quarterback room, at least hearing some things out. Um, now, if it's later in the year between Altmeyer and Dent, if I had to guess, I would think it might be Altmeyer. Honestly, um, kid's tough. He's a good player. I think he's got a lot of room to grow, but if it's later in the year. I think by that point, you're really not a freshman. You know, you've gone through games, you've gone through practice. You're basically a sophomore by the end of your freshman year, at least the way we look at it. I would say it would be him. But to be honest, the more interesting question, to me at least, is what are they going to do next year? Because if I was a betting man, which I am, <laughs> I think they're going in the portal for a quarterback next year. And so I'm not saying Dent or Altmeyer can't be the guy next year and won't develop. I don't know. Haven't been to practice. Haven't seen them. Maybe they're going to be a superstar. But my guess is they're going in the portal next year. And I've got could, some thoughts on who it would be, but I don't know. Who the hell knows at this point? Like, right, right who's going to be wanting to cha transfer who loses what job this time next year? It'll be a very kind of uh, fluid situation. But I could not agree more with you on that one, kind of spinning that forward is, like, if presumably Corral leaves and goes to the NFL draft or this year, barring something insane, I, right. that does feel very grad transfer-y. Or it doesn't even really have to be a grad transfer, right? Like, I mean, No, it, not anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not contingent. Like, you know, the arts thing will kind of make things weird, but the, whether it's grad transfer, whether it's younger guy, you're going to need a quarterback for 2022 at minimum. Assuming one of these guys takes a huge leap, I could not agree more. That feels very, like, I say grad transfer-y. I mean, like, Bo Wallace, you know what I mean? I know Bo was a little unique because he had three years left, but, like, could you get two years out of Chad Kelly, like that type, go Juco transfer, something like that. I couldn't agree more. You hit on two points that I want to get to with regard to the quarterback thing. I find it interesting. And the, one of the few reasons I wished I was still sweating uh, nuts on the practice field in 100-degree weather in early August was – and we, I say that. We probably wouldn't get to see this with the amount of time we're allowed to see practice. What is Plumlee – is he working with receivers 100% of the time? What is – like, in what capacity is he still kind of keeping the door cracked – halfway open, whatever you want to call it, with regard to quarterback, because I think that's a really interesting point you bring up, because I agree with you. Like, you know, Matt Corral steps on an offensive lineman's ankle against Louisville and has to miss a quarter or the rest of the game, whatever the hell it may be. I, I think it's probably Plumlee, too, because whatever. I mean, say he hasn't taken a snap at quarterback since the spring. Let's just say it's the full-on extreme. He's 100% a receiver. Don't you think Kiffin probably still feels better about Plumlee than he would either one of those guys but I agree when you get, you know, five, six weeks in and you've had more of a chance to see Altmeyer and Dent and, you know, potentially by that point in mop-up time, see them in actual game action for whatever you want to take out of that. I think they'd be more inclined to go with one of them 
But like that's going to be a fascinating storyline. Is he 100% committed to the whole receiver thing in terms of that's where he's working with, not his commitment per se? And what does that do to these backup quarterback status? Like you would know better than I am. If they wanted him to be a slot receiver and he worked pretty much full time at it, like could he still be sitting in meetings when he has time? Like how does that process work even if he's not necessarily taking snaps when they're going 11 on air or whatever they call it? Yeah, my guess, I, I do not know what they're going to handle, how they're going to handle that situation. My guess is that when he makes that move to slot receiver, that especially for the first few practices, he's going to be solely at slot receiver. But that doesn't mean that he won't be practicing some sort of package at quarterback while he's taking snaps at quarterback, let's say. But my, I think he'll be really at slot receiver. And it's not – and at slot receiver, you still have to know your route. So it's you're still learning what the quarterback's doing, seeing what he's doing, maybe not read-wise, but you're getting a little bit of knowledge there. But I, I think that he will be at receiver. I think the other two will be at quarterback. I'm sure there will be a walk-on here or there to help throw some balls around. I don't see him taking a lot of snaps throwing the ball, at least in the beginning of fall camp. Maybe they'll work it in a little bit. But I think you've got to, for him to learn what he needs to do, has to be a receiver to start off at least. Two more Plumlee questions for you is, what's interesting to me is he kind of, not kind of, he filled in at receiver out of necessity because of opt-outs and injuries for the Outback Bowl. And he did pretty well, right? He had five catches, including probably, I mean, can't even really argue it, the biggest of the game, that one he had over the middle that got the first down that almost iced the thing away, but was a huge conversion. Yep. It was clearly there's a base level of competency there. Kid's hands, pretty good. You know what the speed is. He seems relatively smart and perceptive. When you commit to a playing receiver, whether it's slot or outside, like I've written about this a couple of times, like how well does he pick up the intricacies of the position? But I've written that without actually knowing what those are. Like what is the next step to becoming a receiver? Like what is there to learn and how much can he – mask whatever sort of minor deficiencies he has whether it's footwork or blocking or getting separation like how much can he mask that by sheer quickness how does that work I think for him it's all going to be about the small things mainly route running though that's something that you don't at least at the college level it, it's more than just get open and as good of an athlete as he is you know he's got pretty good hands he does body catch a lot um, but it's all going to be about route running. He's not the most uh, make-you-miss guy in the world. Like, he doesn't have Elijah Moore hips where he's just going to throw the DB to the complete opposite direction, but he is athletic enough to get to that point maybe. Um, I think he's just going to be learning the offense, learning the, I guess the word you say, intricacies of the position, and I think he's going to be fine there. But there is going to be work that he's going to have to do because there's some depth at that position. But you want him on the field because he is one of the best athletes on the field. You can get him on there in multiple ways. I don't think you're going to see him outside very often. But at the slot, I think he's got a chance to be pretty dangerous um, if he fully commits to it 100%. Yeah, because there's a world where you look up in early October and it's like, holy shit, like what do they have here in this guy? Because if he comes, like you mentioned, a halfway competent route runner, 
like you couple that with whatever package you want to have him at at quarterback or kind of let him come across and run the ball laterally as well, just getting him in space. Like if he can kind of get a handle on all that, you really kind of have something there. And maybe this isn't the right fit, but in my mind, like the one of the better case scenarios, if that's the case, can you imagine a four wide with Plumley at one slot and Ely at the other? Like that, you kind of have something there, particularly if the outside has any sort of competency. That could be pretty nasty. Yeah, it would be a problem. I think I would see him doing a lot of Taysom, Taysom Hill-esque stuff, which pains me to say as a Saints fan, I just cannot stand when he's on the field, especially when Breeze was quarterback. But taking snaps, lining up in the backfield, lining up anywhere along the four, the receivers, X, Y, Z, um, he's going to be a weapon for him. And I think there's going to be a lot of Plumley on the field in different ways. Kiffin and Levy are going to figure it out. With him and Ely, there's just a lot of different options you can have there. And I think they're, going to, they're definitely going to use him at receiver a lot. Reeling it back in towards QB2, Kincaid Dent, Luke Altmeyer. you mentioned you kind of favored Altmeyer if you mention like if, if you get six weeks in and they're in Knoxville or whatever and Corral gets a stinger, whatever, has to miss a little bit of time. You mentioned you kind of favored Altmeyer. Give me kind of as two guys that you saw come up uh, without disparaging the good Jackson Academy kid. Uh, please like kind of give me the breakdown of the two. Like what are their skill sets? What does one do better than the other one? Just kind of what do you see out of both of them? All right, we'll, we'll start with Dent because he's been there longer, and I'm friends with Dent. Um, I don't know if he listened to this. I doubt it, so I guess he can close his eyes a little bit. Um, he is a big kid. He's got a pretty good arm. It's not, not a great arm. Uh, when he was coming out of high school, he was kind of underrated, kind of a late bloomer out of nowhere. I think he was probably headed to Tulane before we realized we really needed to add another quarterback to the room. I think we signed three that year. Tisdale, Plumley, and Dent. I guess I was 19, I think. Yep. Uh, um, so that worked out. Um, and uh, Dent, he, he's at way more athletic than you'd think. His deal, he had a few practices last fall where you really saw him coming on. And then he just kind of went away. And I just don't know if he – I don't know what his future is at that position. I don't know what they want out of him. And I don't know, I don't know with him. It's, it's honestly a weird kind of deal. You've seen the ups and downs with him and he's got talent. You just got to put it together. I think more mentally than physically, because he's a big, strong kid. Um, Altmaier was one of my favorite recruits ever, just because he was so easy. So, you know, respectful, responsible of his nails, his film from Starkville. I mean, they must have had the worst offensive line in that division. He was on his ass play after play. And that was really – that's really the only way you can gauge toughness, which is so important, which is seeing what he did the next play. Um, he's athletic enough for the position. He's accurate. He's got a quick release. Um, his deal, though, is he – measurables-wise, I don't know what his ceiling's going to be not a huge arm and he's not the biggest kid in the world. He'll, he'll grow, gain muscle, but I'm just confident in the kid. He's um, we had a seven on seven camp three years ago, I think. And he was a sophomore. Will Rogers was a junior. 
both compete against each other in the championship game. And Luke was so much better, like just visually so much better. He's out there calling plays for his own offense. I mean, kid's a stud. He is. And if I had to guess, he's going to pass up Dent. And that's not to say that Dent's not a good player. I did a bad job explaining that earlier. He is a good player, and he's got room to grow, and he's showing it, like I said. I'm, I would go with Allmeyer a few weeks into the season for sure. Well, and as you mentioned that, talking about that seven-on-seven seven story about Altmeyer being better in your eyes than Rodgers was, like Rodgers came in as a true freshman in a really, really crappy situation last year and really held his own. Like, he did pretty well. And I know it's easy to have a high completion rate in a Mike Leach offense and all of that, but it wasn't just that. The state team was a hell of a lot more competent and in kind of transitioning off of that, looked more competent offensively with that kid in as an 18-year-old freshman. And so if there's any sort of that quality there, like you mentioned the toughness and kind of the leadership aspect of it, I would tend – I mean, I'm obviously deferring to you, but I would tend to agree with that line of thinking as well. And so I guess, like, you probably already answered it, but, like, the second part of my question was, like, yes, he only has a year leg up in terms of what Lane Kiffin and Levy are running, but, like, how much of an advantage would you give Dent being – 2021, 20, however old he is, and being in college, a college program for two and a half, three years, whatever. I guess he's on his third year now. Yep. Like, how much of an advantage would that be? Like, maybe, like you mentioned, even if it's Plumley, like if it's three weeks in versus six, it might make a slight difference. Like, what? How much weight would you give that, if anything at all? There's real weight there. That's that's a real thing. I mean, he's been in the weight room with this offense. It'll be his second year, which is so huge because he's just been through the initial installation of what they had year now they'll just be adding on to it along with reviewing some things that they've done I mean I wouldn't be surprised if Dent's the backup at all because he's got the talent it's just Altmaier's just a dog I mean he really is um I don't like I said earlier ceiling wise I don't know what Altmaier would be I I see him as throwing back to my fandom like like a best case scenario a Matt Sling kind of quarterback um which they won a national championship with him so not a bad player at all um, but having that kind of leg up two years, weight room, and just being in college is huge. And will possibly be the ultimate decider between who they would put in, you know, like we said, God forbid, Corral gets hurt. Another area I'm kind of interested in as far as camp progresses, and it's so hard to tell in camp, like, who's actually any good at receiver and who's not. Um you know, the days where you would walk out and see A.J. Brown or D.K. Metcalf seemingly do something that divide both gravity and physics at the same time, that was pretty easy to tell. You'd write down in a little notebook, wow, that was cool. But, like, when you have, like, kind of an unproven room like that, there's not a whole lot you can kind of gauge, particularly with what we were able to see, of them going against air, uh, shockingly. But, like, one of the, the questions I sent you, I guess, was today, heading into camp, if you just had to guess – who starts game one at receiver, which I know is kind of an arbitrary thing because it doesn't really matter that much. But, like, my answer, I guess I'll start out, is, like, it's Sanders, obviously, assuming he doesn't get hurt. That's a huge thing with him because I think he could be – Which is an assumption you really can't make. Exactly. The last two and a half years. Yeah, it hasn't happened yet other than his freshman year. So, assuming a clean bill of health, him – I would tend to favor Drummond on the outside, and then I would probably go Plumlee if you're going with the slot – but I imagine just day one of camp, do you think they throw Mingo there if you're just putting names on a depth chart? Like, 
I would eventually probably go Plumley. They're going to start him off at the slot when they play the season opener in Atlanta. So that's my three. How do you view that kind of position group now and then when they go play on Labor Day weekend? There's a lot of guys in that room. It's kind of hard to assume who's going to be where. And he'll they'll know through fall camp. I mean, that's why you have fall camp is to kind of decide these kind of things. My guess, if you uh, I would go Sanders outside, Drummond on the other side, and I would go Quay Davis, the Juco kid they signed at slot, if you Ooh. made me guess. Um, I, don't, I don't know if Plumlee is going to start right off the bat. I would guess – I mean, you don't sign a Juco kid, like I said in the last podcast, on the defensive lineman, if you don't expect him to start. Kid's talented. I would bet he's your slot, if I had to guess. Okay, and then so that's a that's a really good pick because that's a kid that didn't get a ton of pub in that class, but like you mentioned, was a really good player because that was a guy when you started like asking a couple of folks, it was like I wouldn't sleep on this kid. Another one I didn't mention in there, I I I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm about ninety nine percent positive he was not a spring enrollee. JJ Henry, what what do you kind of give his chances of playing on the field, uh, playing immediately? Love JJ's film. I mean, he played Dallas as good of yet um he's a small though like he's really small now he's dynamic he's um he's I would say he's gonna have to take some time he's got to get in the weight room like be in college football take a few hits but he's really talented the guy that you want to see out there would be Mingo he he's the guy you would be really excited if he's starting out there getting more reps I think he really has to come on he's been Good, but I would say compared to what we would see in practice and stuff like that, a little bit underwhelming so far in this career, but he's got the talent. That's a guy I would love to see play more. And then uh, there's that Western Kentucky kid they brought in, and he had some real production there. He's a guy you might see. I have no idea if that kid's good or not, to be honest, but he's a kid you could possibly see out there. Yeah, because you don't really bring a transfer in if you don't think he's at least going to be in the mix from the get-go. As far as Mingo, he's an interesting case because, I mean, I'm just putting my, like, people in my dumb brain. Is like, And I imagine I'm not the only one that thinks this. He's got a like, not, like decent size, kind of slightly undersized outside guy-looking body. He wears that number one that Dreadwell and A.J. Brown and one. And he does, like, certain things where you're like, that's it. Like, can we get that every now and, like, more often? He had the Kentucky game last year. And then things just never piece together. Like, in your mind, what is holding him back? I think it's just it, it's just consistency with him. I think he does struggle a little bit to get open because he's not a blazer. And in this offense, they want blazers on the outside. Sanders is fast. Drummond is, like, the weirdest. He's a great kid. He's, like, weird fast. Like, he just glides out there, and he's got such great body control that he doesn't have to outrun people necessarily. Mingo is just really just being consistent with his hands, focus, playing the ball in the air. He's a, he's physically, he's got it. I think he's just got to keep it there. Um, I want him, I want to see him out there more because he is really talented. Yeah, it's kind of like, I don't, if you'd have told me at the beginning of 2020 that Mingo had 27 receptions, I, I'm honest to God, that's, that's 10 games. So that's two, almost three a game. Like, 
I guess I would have gone like I can't. I almost couldn't decide if I would have said, "Oh, that's it," or, "Wow, okay, maybe that's something." But again, with the way it shook out with Elijah Moore just being force-fed the football for the second year, right. that changes everything. I mean, he right, had, exactly. Like, that changes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that changes how you evaluate everyone else around him. I. That is probably one of the keys. So, like, wouldn't you say, newcomers aside, the the Western Kentucky kid, you mentioned the JUCO kid they brought in, like those two aside, would you say the, in terms of known commodities, like in my mind, the two biggest keys, because I think you kind of know what you have in Drummond for the most part. Like, to me, the two biggest keys here are, can Mingo take that, this is a cliche, proverbial next step, one, and then two is Sanders' help. Like, if you're like headline A, headline B as it pertains to the receivers, that to me is the biggest two. Would you throw another one in there? Agree, disagree? I agree with you. The other kid I'd throw in there is Jaden Jackson. He. I was about to get to that. I was about to say that Jackson brothers, I know they're not brothers, but like what is the deal with both of those? Let's just hit both of them. Both Jackson kids? Yeah, just Um, grab on. Jaden Jackson. I, is is the most talented receiver on the team. Really? He truly, yes. Speed, hands, hips, all the above is the most talented. It's just about maturity with him. You know, I I don't I'm not his coach, so I wasn't in there all day. But he just couldn't couldn't stay on the field. You know, couldn't stay in practice, couldn't stay healthy. Um, if he's out there starting against Louisville, that's really exciting. <laughs> That would be very, very – if you're an Ole Miss fan, you'd be really, really happy if he's out there starting. Um, I don't know what his situation is right now, if he's going to be practicing and all good to go. But he is, I'll say it, the most talented player in that room. Dennis is just – he's fast as hell. He's good. He doesn't – he plays slot but is slimmer struggled over the middle a bit. I think he just has to be more mature as well. And that's, you know, that's with college kids, you just never know. All the talent can be there, but are you going to be able to bring it up every single practice, every single day? And that's not easy. I mean, like you mentioned, AJ and DK, those guys practice their ass off. And I think some of the guys that got on the team saw them or were like, well, eventually one day we're going to be AJ and DK. It's not how it works. They are – just physically different. And so some of these guys have bought into that. Some of these guys can get there, and some of these guys need to get there if they want to be on the field. When you said Jaden Jackson, it made me think of – I'll never forget this in 2019 because there was not a ton of interesting stuff to cover in 2019. Honest to God, the most fun I had that season was when we were sitting next to a visible coordinator's box, and I just got to watch Richrod do whatever the hell he does for four hours on a Saturday. But we were down on the field at Alabama, and the game was pretty – the game was over, obviously. It was a blowout, but there's still about four minutes left on the clock. And, like, right as I walk out on the field, Grant Tisdale throws just, like, a beautiful route, a ball over the middle to Jaden Jackson for, like, a 28-yard touchdown – and, of course, with the dysfunction that they had at quarterback in the passing game in general, all we got on the radio for the next three weeks for questions were, why not try Grant Tisdale? Where the hell is Jaden Jackson? And it's like, I don't know the answers to these things, but I see what you saw in that one moment. Like, he is kind of a tantalizing talent, like you mentioned. Dennis obviously has the speed, but, like, there seems to be a hell of a lot more there with Jaden. And obviously you agreed, like, saying he's probably the most talented receiver in the on the team 
I mean, 6'2", probably at 200, somewhere pushing around 200 pounds at this point. Yeah, probably a little bit less than that, but he, he, he's a hell of a player. Can't, could be a hell of a player, I guess I should say. What is, if, he has, if, if, if he's the breakout player, whatever, let's look at the end of the year. He has 700 yards and six touchdowns and is a productive receiver in Lane Kiffin's offense. How, what does that usage look like? Uh, he can play inside and outside. That's what's so important about him personally is at yeah, um, inside slot, outside receiver. I mean, he's he can run by you. He can make make you miss. He's a good route runner. Good hands. He he does everything you want. It's just can he put it together? It's funny you mentioned that play because I remember one game and after that play, just like face bombing and being like, oh, we really going to have to hear about Grant Isdale <laughs> for the next four weeks, like, because of one throw in the Alabama game against, like, some backups. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like, we're not going to have to do this, are we? <laughs> Which is not fair to Grant. He's a good kid, but just wasn't wasn't going to play over Plumlee or Corral. And then everyone's like, but should he? And then I was just like, no, <laughs> no. Quick aside on that, because that was one of the things when I was like, we, when I would like text you or whatever, try to get a better understanding back then. That was one of the more like eye-opening things. It's like, because obviously I, we, I say we as in like media, obviously fans don't get to see, but like I, we don't get to see what y'all get to see every day. And so I was always the first one to put my hand up whenever I get asked about, you know, why isn't Tisdale getting more of a look? I would just say, I have no idea. I don't get to see this. Like the, you know, from people I talk to, I can kind of get a decent idea. Like, to me, he's a very common – like a very good example of misconception of like fan base and what he was as a recruit to when you get in the program and actually what guys like you guys on the inside see versus what we're able to somewhat see and then somewhat just kind of piece together of things we can't see. Like what was it with him? Like what was the disconnect? Like why, obviously people liked the nice spiral he threw in Bryant-Denny Stadium that day. What was he missing that like people, I guess, from the naked eye wouldn't be able to see? Um, he just really didn't get better from his junior year at Allen. I mean, he was a di- he was a pretty dynamic kid. I mean, I think he was highly rated, if I remember correctly, which I don't. Um, he just did, he didn't get better. Kid, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, something like that, which means nothing. But um, he just didn't get much better. That's what's scary about those kids at these big programs, especially in Texas. Like they're just. You just never know if they're going to get any better. And Grant really, like, didn't have the strongest senior year. And I think that kind of led to the decision to we need to find another quarterback as well because you're not going to drop him. Like, that's not really – that happens, but that's just not something we were going to do. If I I mean, I was not in the decision room during that, obviously. Um, But he just had a lot things that just weren't out in his favor being a college quarterback and it had nothing to do with his work ethic or like as a kid just wasn't talented enough which is I guess me yeah and as someone that so I freelance games out here for the Dallas Morning News now and like I, I kind of did it last year just to have something to do and a little bit of extra money on the side but like there's also like like out here particularly, I mean, Jesus Christ, these stadiums are like cathedrals. It's really kind of unbelievable. I went to a game in Mansfield, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's a five or six of Timberview and all that kind of stuff. They're crazy. 
I sat in the visiting press box and it was nicer than Arkansas, Vanderbilt, and Mississippi States. And there's really like, it's not even close. It was two stories. It had a fridge, like a nicer bathroom than I had in my apartment. And this is the visiting press box where the visiting coordinators are sitting. Like it was nuts. And I say all of that to say is like, you know, the Allen Eagles, that's a hell of a high school football program. So it's like, if you're starting for the Allen high school football team, like name the player, Kyler Murray, whomever, like it almost, there's almost a certain unwarranted if you don't prove it hype that comes with just playing at programs like that because they just for the lack of a better phrase shit out division one athletes yeah i mean those those schools are insane and all these i mean here in houston they're all insane here too they're huge they're massive the best schools get all the best players from around and i mean i don't want this to be a smear grant tisdale's name you know portion of the podcast but just those high schools in texas you really have to do your due diligence on some of those kids because they're all wildly talented. But how talented are they? What's their real age? Those kids get held back for athletics all the time. And, like, what's their growth potential? Um, and you go through that a lot. And I think you've seen Texas, you know, why have they been so bad? They get all these awesome Texas high school football players. Well, by the time they get to Texas – They've been lifting weights, lifting weights, goodness, since they were in seventh grade, you know, or fifth grade or whatever. So it's just the difference of do you want to take the kid from little school Mississippi or the kid from big school Texas if they're the same evaluation, what do you do? You know, it, it's tough. But Texas high school football is, is the real deal. Flipping over to defense, I think probably the most interesting aspect of the defense to me, and, like, we kind of covered this last time, was like, okay, yes, can they get a pass rush? I've, to be completely honest, I don't think you're going to be able to know the answer to that until you get a game or two in. I'm not sure there's a ton that you're going to be able to see or tell in fall camp that's going to be like, oh, yeah, they're fine in terms of pass rush and defensive line in general. What I am fascinated by is the secondary because it's very weird to have a secondary that was – the worst in the conference last year by most all statistics. And the year before that was very young too, probably played over their head a little bit. Still wasn't good per se, but I thought Mike McIntyre maximized what he could get out of a bunch of young kids. But now all of a sudden, you know, you had Otis Reese that wasn't ruled eligible to the end of the year last year. You kind of had Dean Leonard come in towards the end of the year and kind of at least find his footing. And then you get DeAndre Prince back in the program and a healthy Jalen Jones, I'm not saying all of those guys are going to start are going to be in the mix, but that's on top of a known commodity in Keedron Smith and Ja'Cory Hawkins, who played pretty good football for Ole Miss at times last year. Like, it's weird to have what was presumably the worst defense in the conference, or excuse me, secondary in the conference, have a ton of options. So this is open-ended, but when you just look at the secondary on paper heading into the first day of camp, how do you look at it? Because it seems like there's a ton of room for optimism there. There's a lot of names there. I mean, that there's depth there, real depth the first time, maybe since I've been to college there, since like 16 or something like that. Um, you know, you got Kedron, who's been there for a while, is a veteran, knows what to do, is productive. Prince was a stud as a freshman. I mean, you don't play in the SEC uh, as a DB um, as a freshman if you're not a really good player. He left. I honestly don't even remember why he left. But if he's back, healthy, good to go, that's really good for them. Um, Hawkins and Leonard will be there. I think they can press the start. They'll definitely be playing. Um, then you've got a lot of the young kids. I mean, they, I think we signed seven last year. 
what position are they going to start out as? Are they going to be corners or safeties? Um, MJ Daniels is one that comes to mind. Like, he's got a chance to be a really good player. Is he going to start out a corner? Um, what's Miles Battle's development like is another guy to look out for. I mean, I think T-Buck was basically telling him what to do on the sidelines last year before play started. Whether the receiver hurt or not, I don't even think we cared. And he actually fared pretty well, all things considered, for having a midseason move. And then, obviously, a healthy Jalen Jones. How healthy are you, I guess, would be the real question. Because he's had a lot of different injuries. And I don't think he'll be 100%. But he's still a really smart, good player that can play all four or five positions in the back. So there's depth there for sure. Yeah, and that's an interesting. So I, I couldn't agree more on Prince. Where like, you know, on a seat on a, a mirage of issues they had on defense that year, he was there. It was like holy cow! Like this kid, particularly from an athleticism standpoint, was sort of freakish. And so I get, I don't even know where I want to take it from here. Is like you mentioned some of the young kids. I mean, how anytime you talk to anyone uh, like around the program, they mentioned Tash Tashim Johnson, Tashim Johnson, whatever, however you say his first name's name in terms of a guy that has a chance to play immediately, but it's a, it's kind of become a crowded room. I'll pose this question to you. If, you know, let's just put it at corner, but start at corner. Obviously, two guys are going to start. Jalen Jordan played a pretty decent slot corner, and Tyler Knight wasn't terrible all the time, but if they had to move one of those outside dudes to slot corner, what kind of transition is that like? Does it make any difference at all? Um, it does. I guess it depends on your scheme, really. I know in Atlanta's defense – that position, like the Minka Fitzpatrick position, is the toughest to play. Really is. There's, he asked so much of you. And they had a play last year. Malachi Moore and I think you know, Elijah ate him up a little bit in that game. But that kid's a stud. Um, like I've mentioned before, I, I, I coach. So I really don't know the exact defensive scheme that we do and how that affects is inside harder than outside. Um, but inside, you can be asked more. You can be asked more. There's just a little more going on with that position compared to outside. Um, but they've got guys that can do it. Um, you don't necessarily want to go out there next year with Tyler Knight starting that position. No offense to Tyler. And you works his ass off and it's tough as hell. Um, but I could see maybe a guy like Hawkins starting out in there with Prince Smith or maybe one of the young guys as well. Uh, or uh, DeMarco, one of those guys being in the mix there at least. So it's kind of a weird thing to go from having no depth or very little depth. I don't know. I don't even know if you could describe last year of them having no depth. They just had a bunch of inexperienced pieces to having quite a bit of experience and some guys with some snaps under their belt. In the SEC, in your mind, like what is the difference between having a bunch of pieces, kind of where it seems like Ole Miss has, to where, I don't know, pick the year with a couple of those LSU secondaries where it's like, holy shit. I think the short answer is probably freak athleticism. And like how much of that in your mind does Ole Miss have on the roster? I would just, from a layman's perspective, I would classify Kedron Smith has some of that in and DeAndre Pence definitely does. Like, what is the athleticism like at corner? How would you grade that compared to the rest of the SEC in terms of what Ole Miss has in the cupboard right now? I think there's still a ways to go. I mean, the, there's so many – these kids these days, like recruiting-wise, I guess, they all play corner and receiver. So there's so many out there. You really have to recruit those positions well if you want to compete, especially the way they throw the ball now. 
I mean, no one just runs eye formation anymore. You're going to get the ball all over the field all the time. You have to have depth because they can't play the whole game. I mean, even Stingley doesn't play the whole game. Right. Uh, so it's important to have depth. You need to have quality depth, too. Um, and I think they're getting closer to that. I think that's why we signed so many DBs. It's like we really need a stable. Like we've got to figure out, you know, throw some darts to the board and hope a few hit. Um, trust your evals and let's let's go from there. Um, so I think they're getting there. I think adding some elite guys, or at least who you think are going to be elite, because it's at the end of the day, it's still kind of a crapshoot. Um, and I think MJ Daniels is a guy that's a good start. Like that's a body type of a kid that's got a chance to be really special. And those you got to keep on accumulating those kinds of guys. What's what is the Tashim Johnson buzz surprise you at all? And did like what what did you kind of see from him coming out of high school? And is that him kind of turning heads a little bit in spring and kind of I guess being in the mix maybe more so than people thought? Is that surprising to you at all? What's kind of your vantage point on him at this point? Um, it's not super surprising to me. He's an interesting case. You know, the story on him was, especially from Coach Partridge, who knows that area so well, was like, this guy is just magnetic personality, really loves football and is super, super, super smart, coming from one of those Philly powerhouses. But he didn't play defense in high school. He played running back. So it was all a projection. I'm like, is this kid, like, does he have the athletic traits to do it? Um, what's his transition going to be like? And that's tough to do. And you do it all the time in recruiting. You project players at all kinds of positions. And I'm not surprised he's got some buzz and do well. I think from a fan perspective, you know, I think he was a pretty highly rated kid. So you're like automatically excited about the kid, which like I've said before, means nothing. But I'm not surprised he's doing well. The makeup of the kid was A+. Um, from all we heard about him. So he's a smart kid. And that's really as a young, as being a young player, that's the first thing you need is to be able to comprehend, understand defense as quickly. That's how you get on the field. And then athletically, he is good enough. So, you know, that just kind of comes second nature to him. So I'm not surprised. Opening up to the entire defense, out of the kids in this 2021 class on the defensive side of the football, if you had to wager on one kid to make an impact immediately this fall do you have one that sticks out mine would be mj now i think he definitely mj uh, just he's an sec body type i mean just like length height speed all those kind of stuff you look for he'll have a chance to play early because of that and he's just a hell of an athlete can play and safety um that's the guy i would say would be the one i'd be looking for for a hundred percent pretty confident he's going to be playing this year. What is the best case, like in your mind, best case scenario for this, for this, Ole Miss obviously needs to take the ball away from the other team at a much higher clip than they have really in the last four or five years combined. In terms of just looking at it from a secondary standpoint, like it's so hard. This is such a bad question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. Like, oh, wow. Like, like, what is like, what is a good like? What is the ceiling for this defense? Like, is it a middle of, like not defense secondary? Is it like middle of the pack by SEC standards? Like, could it become the strength of the defense? Like, in your mind, if you look back at twenty twenty one, Ole Miss is nine and three. Like, what did the secondary do in your mind? Because they've come a long way from the whole West McGriff. I'll never forget. I didn't watch very many games on TV, but I try to watch them on Sundays. 
How many? I mean, God damn it! I, how many times could you count? The guy catches the ball in the flats or somewhere, and they the TV screen could pan around, and there's no one within 15 <laughs> yards of the guy. Like they come along with that. Sidelines for that. <laughs> right, like exactly. Yeah, like what is what in your mind? Like what is a good season for the secondary if you can quantify that at all? That's that's tough to quantify. Um, you gotta have to force more turnovers. I mean, that's like the the key is turnover margin, especially with swing games. You know, if you can get and it sounds so layman's and so obvious, but if you can turn the ball over more than you give them the ball, or if you can create more turnovers than you give them, you have such a better chance of winning the game. You learned absolutely nothing from that statement, but it's true. Um, and that's just where they have to do – they have to do better about that. They have to really know their assignments well. If they can get top 75 defense this year, I mean, even top 60 or something like that, you really got a chance to be a really good football team. Yeah, I think you just described that well because I think that – what did McIntyre's defense finished in like the high 70s, low 80s, if I'm not mistaken? He deserves a – Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, it was unbelievable. For what he, for what he did with, with them. Truly, McIntyre was the best. Like, He's I a great love dude, that guy. it seems like, too. Great. Smart guy. Amazing guy. And he was awesome. He was a great, great hire. He did a hell of a job. Um, if they can get anywhere near that kind of play with maybe a little more pressure on the quarterback, that would be great. I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean – you have a lot of returning starters, but is that always a good thing? Yes and no. Um, but that's the kind of level of defense that if you get, then the offense will can carry the rest of the way. Yeah, you talk about a good hire. Like, if they were if, – if, if that whole offseason, it was like, wow, like uh, Matt Luke hired two former Pac-12 sitting head coaches. Like, if you'd had an offensive version of Mike McIntyre, Matt Luke's probably – still the head football coach and said you kind of hired a maniac that uh <laughs> that kind of shoehorned the icky you know they it always cracked me up they spent the entire offseason billing corral is like the face of the program they took him to sec media days as a freshman we got to ask all these questions about if he's ready to handle all this shit and in the back of it, like rich rod's mind in his entire time i feel like he saw Plumley run one time and was like we're about to stage a coup Shit's about to get weird around here. And it just got worse and worse. It was such a weird deal. I don't even think Rich Rod had that in the back of his mind. because It was a little bit of Luke, too. He wanted to be kind of have that smash mouth identity, don't you think? Yeah, I do. But I think, you know, just at practice, like, Corral was the guy. But then he got hurt. And Plumlee came in. He was just dynamic. But, you know, it's like in the NFL, like, you know, once you see it once or twice or a few times, like, you can stop it. Like, it's going to happen eventually, and that's kind of what ended up happening. You mean them running on, like, 17 straight first downs at Auburn or whatever that was? (laughs) Yes, and then running a five-yard flat out um, on third down eight. And then (laughs) – but (laughs) – golly. The the exception of the LSU game, I mean, that that offense just – it just did not click. Okay, so I have one theory on this before we wrap up. Is there any credence to the fact – so that first half of that Memphis game in 19, it was a huge deal because the entire storyline going in is, what is Matt Corral? Is he ready for all of this? Yeah. And you – the, the, 
to credit to the rest to whatever his name I can't remember that Jack what's his name Bicknell to his credit the yeah. year they ended up okay that first th- two and a half quarters at Memphis was about as bad of offensive line play as you'll see in major college football so it was impossible to evaluate Corral so mm-hmm. between that and kind of ugly scathing by Arkansas barely escaping them and then him getting hurt at Cal, like there, it felt like there was so much wow. pressure on the coaching staff to kind of make something happen that the move almost felt forced to where it wasn't really Corral's fault at all. But like, if he'd had a competent offensive line and been able to throw okay, like I feel like that would have turned out different. But it was so bad early on. I feel like that the incompetency on the offensive line seemed to kind of make them a little more trigger happy to make a change. Is there any credence to that at all? Uh, yeah, I, I mean. It's so there was a lot of factors going on throughout all of that kind of stuff. And that Memphis game, I was there for some reason. And it was it was bad. I mean, they were just letting guys through free in the A gap. I mean, they just did not have a handle on what they needed to do. And I, there was a combination of things going into that. Um, but it was tough to eve out Matt after that. But when you watch the film after, I mean, Matt made mistakes, too. It wasn't all – I mean, I remember one play, you know, I think we had Drummond streaking down for, like, a touchdown, like, literally wide open, and then he ended up getting sacked for a safety instead. Um, but I I think that's fair. It, offensive line play was rough in the beginning of that tenure because it was such a dramatic scheme change from Longo to Rich Rod, which was like a triple option – kind of offense that wasn't triple option but it was (laughs) this is going to happen so many times as we do this podcast through the season like we've already reached the peak i'm going to ask so many questions about 2019 and 2018 and bring up phil longo uh i i restrained myself from doing it earlier when you said there's more to playing college receiver than just getting open because i think phil longo had a play called get open I almost brought it up then, but I was like, you know what? It's only August. We have a long season ahead of us. I've been restrained on the Phil Longo references because there's actually an outside chance I might get a text from uh, Mr. Snakeskin Boots himself regarding that. I uh, <laughs> think I'm putting this back on the rails. I We'll wrap up with this. What would you – so from a you someone who worked on staff and someone who worked in the personnel department – if you were on staff with this 2021 team, what would you like to see in this month of fall camp? You can go anywhere you want with this, with the current roster that they have constructed, given the kind of expectations they have, and they have, you could make an argument that they could win 11 of the 12 games on their schedule. I, of course, don't think that's going to happen. That's a tough argument to make. But yeah, you no, can, no, of course. You can do it. You know what I'm saying? In a given week, like, you know, A&M's in Oxford, right? Like, you could say, okay, if this, this, and this happens, the only one where it's like, okay, dude, why are you talking to me? Is them going to Tuscaloosa. The sure. rest of the games, there's a path, there's a case. I obviously don't think that's going to happen. But fair. that kind of breeds a little bit higher echelon of expectations, which doesn't really pertain to my question. I guess what I'm getting at is, like, what would you like to see in these four weeks to feel pretty good about their ceiling as a team heading into the season opener? Is there anything in particular that sticks out? Ooh, that's a good question. Um that I didn't prepare you for, so that's great hosting by me. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Um, I would say building offensive line depth, which is the boring answer, but is the, it's the correct answer. You've got some known commodities there. You've got Broker and Jeremy James, who's 
really developed into a pretty nice SEC offensive lineman. Um, then Ben Brown, I actually don't even know. Is he playing center? I think he's playing guard. So I think they're trying to move him to guard because I think there's actually a, a decent chance that the kid from Utah that they got could play a little bit of center. And I'll believe that when I see it. Yeah, exactly. Pac-12 ball is so bad. It's so bad. Now, they took him. They must have liked him, and I trust them. They, they're very good evaluators. I'll believe he's, like, really good when he comes out and he's really good, honestly. And that's, you know, not – dissing the staff at all because they know what they're doing they're very good evaluators but that's why I'm saying offensive line because that's an unknown commodity until he's known and then you've got the other spot where you can hide bad guard play but like who are the backup tackles you know you're not going to have 100% health at that position and you know the offense has to be clicking on all cylinders if you want to hypothetically win 11 games like you said probably I don't see that happening but that's – you've got to build depth there. You know, is Eli Acker going to take the next step? Uh, who else is out there? Cedric Melton um, or one of the freshmen is going to come out of nowhere. That's hard to do in this league. But that, that would be the position where, like, if you have a really solid eight guys that can play and that you trust you can play, you're really cooking with fire on offense. Yeah, I'll give you a great example of what you were talking about, about Pac-12 football being different. Do you remember it said 16, the last year they really had any sort of hype and expectations. They needed a linebacker because, you know, all of a sudden it looked up and it's like, hey, actually it's been two years since Freeze recruited an actual college linebacker. I mean, hell, Taylor Polk, no disrespect to Taylor Polk, was starting games for them at the end of that year. But do you remember they had that kid, Rommel Mayeo? He had kind of the weird pronunciation. He was from Oregon State and he was technically, I would like to see his plaque, but he was all Pac-12 at one point. <laughs> Bye. I really don't remember this kid. All I remember about There's 16, no reason to. There's no yeah, reason He's breaking our TV after giving up the uh, second half lead to Florida State. That's all I remember about that whole year. Well, yeah, so <laughs> there was about two and a half quarters into that season, it was like, okay, this is not going to work. Like, this kid, he was all Pac-12, like, is this the same Pac-12? Was this a high school league in Oregon that I, – I don't – like, it was – it. I will never like I would like you mentioned, I will never give any sort of credence to all Pac twelve ever again after watching that guy. And hell, he looked apart. He walked out on the practice field that first day and I was like, damn, that dude's jacked. But then like it was like, oh, he can't read anything and he's slow. Like that's a tough, tough combination to overcome. So I could not agree more there. Yeah, yeah I, I think they're trying to move Ben Brown back to guard, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. Did Jeremy James play any center? I'm trying to think who they were. Like, I wrote about this 10 days ago. No. Uh, Bryce Ramsey played a little bit of center. Yeah. Um, Jim Cunningham? He, little. Oh, God. I forgot he's there. Uh, no, no. Guard. Only guard. And, I mean, I don't know if he's a guy they, they trust to play at. So, you know, he didn't play a lot. Um, who else? I mean, I, I know this is bad podcasting. I'm trying to think of who's on the offensive line in that room. Um there's the Buford kids, Colquitt and Reese McIntyre. Um, yeah, I think you need to – you just need to figure out that last guard spot. Yeah, that that's – it's huge. It's really not even just guard. It's just eight guys who can play anywhere that can contribute. Absolutely. And so, we will, uh, that's about everything we had for today. There's some other defensive stuff we'll get through throughout camp, but uh, – as we kind of get a week or two into this, I'll be kind of interested to see 
as worthless as some of this fall camp stuff is, particularly with the availability, you can tell, particularly in the first 10 days, you know, there's, a, there's always one or two names on each side of the football that coaching staffs bring up in the first 10 days of, like, media availability. And you can kind of tell, okay, this guy kind of has something here. And I think there's a chance you see that at offensive, offensive line, receiver, and particularly in the secondary as well. And I'm kind of interested to see what that is. Um, but, dude, I appreciate the time as always. Um, another solid podcast. You're two into this. Um, I didn't send you film on your first one, but I might have to cut up some film for you on this one. And uh, what did you say? You do the good, the bad, and the neutral. Is that how y'all put that in three categories? Good, bad, good, bad, and ugly. Okay, good, bad, and ugly. Uh, you might want to throw a neutral category. A lot, of ne- a lot of negativity there. I still haven't listened to the first one, so I don't know how it went. But I don't listen to my own podcast either. I just let people on the internet tell me how I sound. So, anyway, exactly. that's my good strategy. Dude, I appreciate the time as always. This was good stuff. I'm excited. And that's our show. I appreciate all of you guys tuning in. I thought that was some pretty good insight from Weldon. I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into the football season uh, with him as a regular a co-host segment, whatever you want to call it, on the podcast. Looking forward to diving deeper into that as we get closer toward football season. We'll be back at it with Mailbag Friday tomorrow, the people's holiday. Everybody have a safe and happy Thursday.